as promised this morning, we are going to begin the book of 1 Corinthians, which means <laughs> that actually got a yay. That got like a Tom Slick yay, right? That yay. You can turn to the book of Acts, because that's really the first place where you will be reading as we introduce the book of 1 Corinthians and really introduce both 1st and 2nd Corinthians and talk a little bit about the church at Corinth so that you understand how difficult it was for the gospel to permeate the very hard shell that was Corinth. These letters were written by the Apostle Paul. There's really very little argument about that. The most hard-nosed critic admits that Paul wrote these letters, not only because he names himself a couple of times in these letters, but we also have the earliest of the church fathers who all admit that these letters did come right from the pen of Paul. Now, granted, he probably used what's called an amanuensis, which is basically a secretary. Paul oftentimes would dictate his letters and then have them written by somebody else. And so he's going to mention right in verse 1 this fellow named Sosthenes. And chances are Sosthenes, a converted Jew, acted as his emanuensis when he wrote this letter. So the apostle came to Corinth in the book of Acts. Let's start there. Let's look at Acts 18 and we're going to start right at verse 1. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. Does everybody know kind of situationally where Corinth is geographically? Do you have some sense of where Corinth is? There are maps in the back of your Bible, so you can look at those. But if you look at the Middle East and you look where Judea and Samaria would have been, and then west of that, across the Aegean Sea, then you're going to get into an isthmus, which is not as easy to say as you would think. An isthmus, does anybody who's homeschooled here want to tell us the difference between a peninsula and an isthmus? Merry isthmus. Merry isthmus, <laughs> right. That's exactly it. That's right. Does anyone want to tell us the difference? Come on. An isthmus, it's like an island that is connected to a larger landmass by a thin landmass. There's just a thin causeway that connects them, whereas a peninsula is more like Florida, or if you continue westwardly from Athens and from Corinth, which is in the bottom of Macedonia, we call it Greece, if you continue west, you get to the boot that is Italy, and so you get to Rome. So if you look in the back of your Bibles, you can kind of see where Corinth is. Corinth and Athens are both very close to each other, and Paul oftentimes made the trek between Corinth and Athens. So we read, after these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy, from Rome, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had condemned all the Jews to leave Rome. And so he came to them. 
Now, this actually happened. This is a historic reality. At one point, Claudius actually got tired of all the fighting in the streets. Some of the arguing may have been over Christianity. And so the Jews were constantly contending the same way that they contended with Paul. They would contend with each other over Christianity versus Judaism. And oftentimes riots broke out over this subject. And so in order to quell it and to keep the peace, Claudius just said, that's it. All of you Jews just leave Rome. And so Priscilla and Aquila had been in Rome, which is why Paul seems to be very familiar with them and even mentions them at the end of the Romans letter. So they're very close and they're making that trek back and forth between Rome and, if you're looking at your maps, and Corinth because it's just across the sea from each other. And so because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they were working for by trade, they were tent makers. That's the place that we find out that Paul was a tent maker by trade. And since that's what they did, he worked with them. Now, many people have taken that reality that Paul was a tent maker during the time that he was with Priscilla and Aquila. And they have used that to say, well, see, he was always bivocational, even though he preached the gospel. Paul was always working at another job and therefore... Preachers, pastors, should not take any kind of remuneration for their work. As we go through these letters to the Corinthians, you're going to see Paul repeatedly say that he was not any kind of burden to those people. To the people at Corinth, to the church at Corinth, he didn't want to be a burden to them. But the reason he was not a burden to them, he says, is because he, he actually uses the word robbed. He says, I robbed other churches so that I wouldn't be any kind of burden to you. And then he ends up in the second letter to the Corinthians saying, forgive me because this was wrong. I should have been a burden to you. He said, you've fallen behind the other churches in nothing except this one thing. I was no burden to you. And so there's a conflict through the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, over whether Paul supported himself through tent making or whether the other churches supported him. And in fact, in just a minute, you're going to read that Paul devoted himself full time to the ministry and the study of the word. And that implies that he gave up the tent making once he was able to get the gifts that were brought to him from the other churches. Keep reading. Verse 4. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. This is really, really important because oftentimes people read the book of 1 Corinthians and they think this was written to Gentiles. And yet 1 and 2 Corinthians includes a great deal of very Jewish language. Paul talks about the feasts. The importance of the high days, keeping the feast, talks about the tabernacle, talks about the law. He uses language that would not make any sense to a strictly Gentile audience, especially a strictly Gentile audience out of Corinth, because Corinth was steeped in all kinds of mystery religion and the temple of Aphrodite's. And just all of that was their culture. The worship of foreign gods, Roman gods, Greek gods. And so for Paul to pierce that kind of community and say, 
Christ alone is to be worshipped, and God alone is the only God. There is not a pantheon of gods. That would have made sense to that audience, but his references to to feast days and his references to the law and that kind of thing would have made no sense whatsoever. So as we're reading First and Second Corinthians, you have to keep in mind that just like Paul's letter to the Romans, where he goes back and forth between the Gentiles and the Jews, he does the same thing in these letters. Some of this has very, very Greek reference, very Gentile reference. But some of this letter has very Jewish reference because he is dealing with a mixed multitude. We read that he would reason in the synagogue. That tells us that in Corinth there were synagogues because there was a large Jewish population. You may remember that Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. What's the next phrase? To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And so it was always Paul's modus operandi to go into an area and contend with the Jews first, to teach the Jews first. And then when they rejected what he was preaching, what he was telling them about Jesus, then he would go to the Gentiles. So he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. I think the very fact that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, mentions these two things, that he worked as a tent maker, and then two verses later, he devoted himself after Timothy came to him, then he devoted himself just to the preaching of the gospel. I think the reason that's included is so that we see the contrast. He worked as a tent maker, but then he was supported by these other churches. And so I think you could argue the case. Well, I was going to say you could argue the case either way, but I don't even think that. I think the biblical model, and certainly the Corinthian model, is proper support for those that are in the ministry. And you'll see that as we go through these letters. And so I just want to say right up front that we're going to be talking about money as we go through these letters, but I'm not talking about it because I'm trying to raise funds or or have myself taken care of better because I'm taken care of fine. But I want you to see that what we do here, how we operate, is in fact biblical. So when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they, the Jews, resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. What you're going to find out in a moment is that when he contended with the Jews, there were some believers. There were some converts, but the Jewish leaders in the synagogues resisted him and blasphemed to the point where he shook his coat against them, which is a sign of being done with them. It's exactly what Jesus said. If you go into a city and they don't accept your words, then you brush the dust off your feet when you leave. And so he shook out his garments against them and went to the Gentiles. 
Verse 7, and he departed from there and he went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Now that's a, a Roman Greek name. And so we know that he's a Gentile after Paul had said, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. He found this guy, Titius Justus, who was a God-fearer. Among the Jews, among the Israelites, there were Gentiles who had converted to the Jewish religion and were referred to as God-fearers. There was even in the temple something called the Court of the Gentiles. And that's the place that they could come safely, even though there were areas of the temple that the Gentiles could not enter. So this Titius Justus appears to be someone who was a God-fearer, he was a Gentile, and he became sort of the go-between between the Gentiles and Paul, who was preaching a Jewish Messiah. And so we read in verse 8, And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, okay, that's a Jew, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So what Luke has just told us is that there's a Gentile who has believed, and there's a Jew who has believed. And so you have the foundations there of this congregation in Corinth. You have the beginning of the congregation in Corinth, which is both Jew and Gentile mixed. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul, in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. Then look at the next phrase, for I have many people in this city. One of the great advantages, I've talked about this oftentimes with folks, but one of the great advantages to believing what we believe, which I think is firmly biblical, but one of the great advantages to believing in the elect, in knowing that God has chosen a particular people since before the foundation of the world and written their names in the Lamb's book of life, those people belong to him. Those people are God's people. And he knew that in the city of Corinth, he had many people. And so he would tell Paul, speak boldly, speak openly, because that's the only way that you're going to preach to these people who belong to me, so that they're going to hear the truth, so that they're going to be converted. So I began to say the great advantage we have is that as we preach, as we evangelize, as we tell people the truth of Jesus, we know that the sheep exist. We know that the elect exist. And so I'm not really bothered when somebody hears me talk and says, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I disagree with you. I, no problem. You're not sheep. Fine. Jesus said it. He said it to the Jewish Pharisees. Why don't you believe my word? Because you're not sheep. And Jesus said he laid down his life for the sheep. 
But as I'm out here preaching, as I'm out here evangelizing, as I'm out here telling the truth, and we're doing it on the Internet and doing it on YouTube and doing it anywhere, anybody that will sit down and listen, I will tell them about Jesus because every once in a while something truly miraculous happens. Every once in a while all the lights go on and they get it. And that's when I realize Oh, good, I've met somebody who belongs to God. They don't belong to me. They don't belong to us. They don't belong to GCA. They belong to God, and that's the reason that they can hear the preachment of Christ and genuinely believe it. And so God would assure Paul and say, go ahead and preach. Preach openly because I have many people in this city. Verse 11 And he settled there for a year and six months, a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. And while Gallio was proconsul in Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. Now that's kind of a time stamp. That gives you a sense of when these things took place. We now know that we're talking about the the area of 50 A.D., 51 A.D., right around the time that Gallio was the proconsul there in Achaia. And the reason that the Jews rose up as a body against Paul is told us in verse 13. They were saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And that's why they're upset. They're upset against Paul because he's preaching a message that says the law can't save you. The law didn't save anybody in the Old Testament. All the law could ever do was condemn people. And because the law could only condemn, he was now teaching the new covenant in Christ's blood, salvation by grace through faith. And the Jews are very upset because for 1,400 years, they've been following Moses. They've been following the law. And here's this guy saying something different. And so they want him to just shut up. They want to continue their authority over the people. And here comes Paul with a message that will set them free. You no longer have to abide by the law. You no longer have to be under Moses. You no longer have to abide by those rules. You can be saved through faith in the work, the finished work, the salvation, the death, burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is sufficient to save you without the works of the law. Standard Pauline theology. And so, of course, the Jews who are being undermined would gather together as a group And say, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. He's preaching a different way. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or of a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, then you look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge in these matters. So this Greek proconsul under the yoke of Rome says, this has nothing to do with me. This has to do with matters of your religion. This has to do with matters of your law. I'm not even going to judge against this man. And they thought that if they took Paul in front of the proconsul, that he would 
judge him, that he would put him in jail, that he would have him beaten, he would do something to him. And instead, Gallio says, I have nothing to do with this. And so he drove them away from the judgment seat. Now, remember a few minutes ago, I mentioned this Sosthenes fellow? Well, now we're going to be introduced to him. He's going to show up again in the letter to the Corinthians. He probably worked as Paul's amanuensis. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. So this Sosthenes became so devoted to what Paul believed that he not only traveled with Paul, that he not only worked as Paul's secretary, but he took a beating in front of the judgment seat because he was willing to stand on the teaching of Paul, the belief in Christ as the way to salvation. And so you can see why he and Paul were very close after this. But remember, he's a Jewish fellow. Verse 18, and Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sancria, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. By the way, I have to point this out. I just feel compelled to point this out. This is Paul who is adamant about the law can't help you, the law can't save you. This is Paul who in Galatia said that the Judaizers who wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised, that he wouldn't give them any place, not even for a minute. He wasn't hearing any of it. And yet here's Paul who's taken a vow, which is according to the law, and shaved his head, which is according to the law. What is he doing why would he also be keeping a Jewish custom if he's so adamant about the Jews not having the truth of Christ and so convinced that Christ is the only way and freed him from the law? Why would he cut his hair? Paul was a very unique person, a very unique preacher of the gospel in these early days. And he talked about himself and said, I can be all men to all people. When I'm among those who don't have any law, well, then I'm like one without law. And when I'm with the circumcised, I'm like one with the circumcised. When he went to the Jerusalem council, he not only took a vow, he shaved his head and he killed a lamb in the temple. These are Old Testament customs. These are customs of the law. But he was willing to do that because he was among people who did that. And so his whole purpose in being like the circumcised and like the lawless was he said, I do all these things that I may win the more to Christ. His whole point was be like them, tell them about Christ. Now, of course, if he was among the circumcised, and always withstood them, and always argued against the law, he's never going to get around to, let me tell you about Jesus. He was like them in order to befriend them, in order to not be an offense to them, and then he would tell them about Jesus. If he is among those who don't have any kind of law, and he's preaching the law of Moses, well, then they're not going to hear him. So he was like one without law. Why? So that he could tell them about Jesus. I think this is instructive for us 
we try to be good and kind and gracious to everybody. Jesus said, love your enemies. And by so doing, by so interacting with people, we're able at some point to say, let me tell you about Jesus. And let's not get caught in the weeds over some detail that we don't need to argue about because that detail can't save you. But Jesus can. So Paul was very good at, what was the phrase we used at men's group? Pick your battles. He was very good at that. Verse 18, and Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sancria he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail for Ephesus. And when he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Okay, so let's talk some facts and details now that we've read that out of the book of Acts. The apostle came to Corinth, according to this, right around A.D. 51. We know this is, as we said earlier, when Gallio was proconsul. In fact, he began being the proconsul in July of 1951, our July. So we have a really good idea when these things took place. There, Paul met Aquila and Priscilla who had left Rome in AD 49, which is when Claudius had issued an edict ordering the expulsion of all the Jews from that city. So we know when that happened. So we know that they left in AD 49, they left Rome, they went to Corinth, Paul's in Corinth right around that same time, he runs into Priscilla and Aquila, they join him in his travels after that for a short time, they end up back in Rome, later when he writes the Roman letter, he says hi to them. The couple ran a tent-making business, and since no mention is made of their conversions, they were probably Christians when Paul met up with them. Now, this causes a great deal of consternation for folks. Because then we have to get into, well, then how did Christianity get to Priscilla and Aquila? Well, there were Christians already in Rome. That's what the arguments were all about. That's what the fights in the streets were about. And it's why they were eventually thrown out of Rome. So Christianity was already in Rome. Paul didn't make it to Rome. And yet he wrote a letter to the church at Rome. In fact, he wrote two letters uh, or, or wrote a letter to two churches won the Jewish church and won the Gentile church. But he had never been there. And so Christianity got to Rome some other means other than Paul. I have my own opinion on that, but we won't delve into that right now. So Corinth. Corinth was a huge cosmopolitan city. Only Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch had more people in it than Corinth. So that gives you some idea what size city we're talking about. A huge cosmopolitan city, but it was also a major trade route. Of course, all the ships that are coming through the sea and heading for the Aegean, heading for the Middle East, going to Italy, hitting Greece, from all over the, the known world. 
And so Corinth was really a crossroad of sailors and merchants and con men and politicians and Jews and Romans and Greeks and plenty of false religion. And so that's the environment into which Paul brought the gospel. But knowing a little bit about the culture that was taking place in Corinth helps us understand why it was that the church at Corinth was such a mess. Because you've got in it all these people who have been so influenced by the surrounding culture. And once they tell Paul, you know, the people in our church are just, gosh, there's so many things wrong. There's just a whole litany of things that Paul has to deal with. In fact, he's going to mention a letter that he wrote them. That's called the lost letter because we don't have that. And then he wrote a second letter, which we call 1 Corinthians. And then he wrote a second letter. And at the end of the second letter, he says, and I'll deal with the rest when I get there. I mean, it was a very, very troubled church because it was a very, very pernicious culture in which it lived. And I like the fact, I like the fact that Paul could say so many corrective things to them that the second letter was so severe. And yet at no point did Paul ever say, that's it, you're not a church. He just admitted, you're a church with problems. And I've never known any church ever that isn't a church with problems. I've said this many times. I, I think church is a great idea. Church makes a lot of sense to me. Church is a really good idea. As soon as you let people in it, it just goes all to heck. You know, it just falls apart. Because people come in and they bring all their foibles with them and they bring their sin with them and they bring their traditions with them and they bring their background and their culture and the way they were raised and their family and they bring all that with them. And then we take all these diverse people with all these diverse backgrounds, ideas, opinions, traditions, and we put them all together and say, there, you're a church. Now be in unity. And so I like the fact that Paul had to deal with all these problems in the church at Corinth, but he never said, you're not a church. He never said, you don't belong to God. He never said, you're not Christ. He said, you're a mess, and you need to correct your ways, and you need to clean up your act. But he always used, as their inspiration for being better, he always used, be better because you belong to Christ. Be better because you've been redeemed. Treat each other well because God has treated you well. And so that whole indicative imperative thing we're going to see many times in the letters to Corinth. So major trade city. It's on a major trade route, meaning that the worst of both the east and the west all converged in Corinth. It was also one of the most wicked cities of ancient times, the ancient city had such a reputation for vulgar materialism that Homer's Iliad, do you know that book, Homer's Iliad? In it, he described Corinth as being a wicked city that was linked with wealth and immorality. And as a result, when Plato wrote his book, The Republic, The Republic, that's what it was called. I almost called it The Republican. And that would just be wrong. And that would be, and then he wrote The Democrat. And then he wrote, 
And then he wrote the book that trumped them all. Never mind, forget it, it's, it's not worth it. Plato actually used the expression Corinthian girl to describe a prostitute. So he just assumed that the women of Corinth had such a bad reputation that he could just refer to a prostitute as a Corinthian girl. And people would go, oh, I know what that means. Oh, sure. I have other examples like the playwright Philetarus in his book on Athens titled a burlesque play, Ho, which means the, Ho Corinthiastes, which is translated the lecher. <laughs> this gives you some sense of Corinth and what people thought of Corinthians. Aristophanes coined the verb Corinthiazomai. I think I said that right. Corinthiazomai. He coined that term to refer to fornication. According to Strabo in his geography, much of the wealth and the vice in Corinth centered around the temple of Aphrodites. Because the temple to Aphrodites, who was the goddess of love, had over a thousand temple prostitutes in it. And so, of course, sailors and merchants and traveling folk would head for Corinth because that's where you're sure to find yourself a Corinthian girl. So are you getting a sense of this yet? Mm -hmm. This is the culture into which Paul is saying, now be good. Act Christian. In 146 BC, Corinth rebelled against Rome. The city was destroyed because of its revolt. Only a few columns in the temple of Apollo survived the whole city being raised. And all its citizenry was killed or sold into slavery. It was Julius Caesar who refounded the city as a Roman colony in 46 B.C. In 27 B.C., it became the governmental seat for Achaia, that area, that region of the world. And now I think you can understand why God had to say to him, don't be afraid while you're here. Because I have many people in this city. This is a wicked city. This is an adulterous city. This is a Gentile predominant city. This is a trading city. This is a merchant city. This is a horrible, horrible place. And God said, don't worry, I've got people. Now, this should be good news to every one of us. Because we've gotten so used to the culture of our day that we think, oh, Corinth, they were bad. But have you looked around lately? Have you looked at the things that America has legalized and is doing these days? I mean, we're, we're doing the same things that Corinth used to do, and I'm really glad that even in the midst of a wicked culture that God would still say, but I have my people, and my people are there. So we are God's called people in the midst of a wicked generation, in the midst of a wicked culture. And the fact that God could say, I have people in Corinth, gives me hope because then God has people here, people now, people in America who belong to him even though they dwell in a wicked culture. And that gives me hope. So let's talk for a minute about Paul's missionary journeys to Corinth for just a moment. The best timeline seems to go like this. 
The length of Paul's stay on his first tour of ministry was about one and a half years. We know that because we just read it out of the book of Acts. After which, he sailed sometime in the fall of AD 52, he sailed to Ephesus. We just read that. And he was en route to Jerusalem. Priscilla and Aquila accompanied Paul to Ephesus, where they remained to meet and instruct the gifted Alexandrian fellow named Apollos. Have you heard that name, Apollos? Because later they left Apollos in Corinth, which is why the argument at the church of Corinth was that factions developed and they'd say, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos because Apollos had been there. In fact, if you're still in Acts, go to uh, verse 23 or so. Having spent some time there, he departed and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, who was an Alexandrian by birth, was an eloquent man, and he came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. But he was acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, this is the area of Corinth, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So Apollos is also going to loom large in these letters. Apollos had such an influence on the church at Corinth that he actually had a faction that identified themselves as being of Apollos. While Apollos was ministering in Corinth, Paul returned to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. This is probably the fall, late 1953. He uh, took the journey for a period of about two and a half years. You can read about it in Acts 19. It was probably during the early part of Paul's ministry in Ephesus that he wrote the letter that was mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5.9. I've mentioned this already, that we don't have that letter. He makes reference to that letter. He talks about the letter he sent them, but we don't have it. We have 1 and 2 Corinthians, which were actually the second and third letters that he wrote to them. Paul learned of further problems in the church at Corinth from the household of Chloe. Right away, chapter 1, Paul identifies a woman named Chloe as being his informer. She's the one who apparently wrote to Paul and said, you won't believe what's happening here in the church. So what we call 1 Corinthians was written in response to what Paul heard from Chloe. And then an official delegation that was made up of Stephanos and Fortunatos and Achaicus, they brought Paul specific questions on issues that were dividing the church. 1 Corinthians was written probably around A.D. 54 or 55 
to address those particular matters. But apparently this did not resolve the problems in the church, and it is possible that Timothy was the bearer of that news to Paul, which inspired yet again more letters. After his second visit and his return to Ephesus, Paul sent a letter born probably by Titus, which it grieved him deeply to write. We read it in 2 Corinthians 2.4. We read Paul saying that it was grievous for him to have to write yet another letter, a very severe letter. Because even after the first two letters and after Paul being there in person and after Paul sending them Apollos and after Timothy being through there, he found out that it's still a church full of problems. It's still a church full of all kinds of sin and, and rebellion. And so he has to write <clears throat> and so he has to write to them yet again. Now in Acts 19, 23, 40, if you look there, you'll read about the silversmiths riot. What that was basically about is that the, the silversmiths in Ephesus saw that Paul was preaching Christ and gaining a following, and the silversmiths were the ones that were making idols and making a lot of money by making idols. And so when Paul comes around preaching Christ, these converts are not buying their idols anymore. And so there was a riot against Paul by the silversmiths. And so he once again has to leave Ephesus. And you can read about that in Acts 19. Paul left Ephesus bound for Troas to meet Titus. And because Paul didn't find him there in Troas, he anxiously pushed on to Macedonia Apparently, with grave concern about Titus' safety, uh, we're going to read about that when we get to 2 Corinthians. There he met Titus, who brought him good news about the general well-being of the Corinthian church, but bad news about a group that was opposed to Paul. So everywhere that Paul established churches, there were always Judaizers that came in behind him. There were always people who came in and tried to wreck the church. Now... Having said all that, having said that, I want to point out yet again that it's always been that way with the church. As soon as a church is established, as soon as a church really commits itself and adheres to the teaching of Christ, there are always going to be factions that are going to try to come in and bust up a church. There are always going to be people who come in with other opinions, other ideas. They just want to cause trouble in the church. And we've certainly had a couple of those in our history. But every pastor I've ever talked to, every church I've ever dealt with, they've all said the same thing, which is, yeah, we've had one of those. Yeah, we've had a couple of those. Yeah, we've had people come in and cause trouble. Mm -hmm. It's good to know that that happened all the way back here with Paul. Paul, with all of his authority, with all his God-given right, he's going to argue with the Corinthians right away that he is an apostle who is assigned his apostleship by God himself. He's a God-called apostle, and with all that authority, he establishes a church, and the Jews immediately go, no, who's Paul? No, he's wrong. No, we, we disagree. And so another problem that Paul had to deal with in the Corinthian church was these people who were coming in from the outside and causing troubles on the inside. And again, I'm amazed that Paul never just threw up his hands and said, well, forget it then. <laughs> the folks at Ephesus are doing fine, and you all can just fend for yourself. 
So from Macedonia, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, and he followed it up with his third visit, which is why at the end of his second letter, he, he does say, like I said, he says, I'll deal with the rest when I get there. And that's probably around the winter of A.D. 56, 57. So that gives you some idea of the historic scope of these letters. They were written from 50 to about 57 A.D., and that's the time that Paul was in and out of Corinth. Now let's talk about the purpose and the nature of this letter, and then we'll actually get to the letter, and we'll get about two verses in, and then we'll go eat. The Ephesians, I just mentioned that the church of Ephesus was doing well. Paul's letter to Ephesus really is a letter to the church universal. It really is a letter to the church because he begins with just the very sound theology, the sound doctrine of God's foreordination and God's predetermination and how men get saved by the grace of God and that God does everything according to his own will. So he launches into the Ephesian letter with doctrine, doctrine, theology, theology. Later in the letter, the last half of the letter, he gets into their behavior, but he doesn't really correct them. It's not a corrective, severe letter. The Corinthian letters appear to be really for that church with those problems at that time in that city, very specific, but... We can also learn a great deal from those letters because along the way, as Paul is correcting them, he is also spelling out a great deal of both sound theology and Christian behavior, what Christians ought to be like, how we ought to act. And so as we go through these letters, even though the letters are not written directly to us, I am now writing to the church in Smyrna, Tennessee. You know, that, that's not how he addressed the letter. It's to the church in Corinth, but we can still learn a great deal from these letters, even though they had a specific target audience. 1 Corinthians provides us with a good glimpse of life inside one of the first century churches, and uh, far from saintly it, it was. Yet, that is the very reason that Paul wrote this letter, to make personal sanctification a practical reality within the church, that they had to also show their Christianity by their actions, by the way they lived. The spirit of the world seemed more influential in the Corinthian church than the spirit of God, despite the fact that as we look at the Corinthian letters, we're going to find out that God gave the Corinthians wonderful spiritual gifts. And yet, they're so involved in the world. They're so involved in their culture. So we see this kind of conflict between the spirit of the world and the spirit of God in the letters that Paul had to write here. Generally, the first six chapters are an attempt to correct the contentions that are in the church that were, like I said, brought to Paul's attention by Chloe's letter. And to bring unity, we're going to see Paul say time and time again that this is about unity, this is about oneness within the church. And then beginning in about chapter 7, Paul addresses himself to particular questions about marital issues, about liberty and responsibility, about the spiritual gifts and church order, money for the impoverished saints in Jerusalem, but this just gives you some sense of how broad 
the topics are in this letter. It really kind of jumps around because the original letter to Paul appears to have really jumped around. In chapter 15, he reaffirmed and defended the doctrine of the resurrection. You may know that. 1 Corinthians 15, one of Paul's most famous declarations on the resurrection and the fact that we too are going to participate in the resurrection and that we who are alive and remain won't even die but will be instantaneously changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye this corruptible will put on incorruptibility so in the midst of all these very corrective instructions to this church he also reveals phenomenal realities about the return of Christ and our future with him And the more we understand about that future in Christ, the more he can say, knowing this about yourself, now be a certain way. Standing above all other issues with which this letter deals is really the very existence of the church. I began there and I ended there. I'm glad that Paul never said, you're not a church. But he keeps warning them because at some point, You can't keep acting like this and call yourselves a church because you're not showing Christ in the way that you're living. They were greedy, as Paul will instruct them in the Lord's Supper and stuff, that that they were greedy. They would eat in front of hungry people. They They would not share with the things that God had given them. They would exult in their own spiritual gifts. They misused so many of the things that God gave them And again, I'm amazed that Paul would say, you're still the church, you still belong to Christ, you're still God's chosen people, just behave better. Mm. They were spiritually deprived to start. I would say they were spiritually depraved to start, but that's the difference between us. (laughs) Deprived and depraved. Turn to 1 Corinthians. That was all introduction. That's right. You knew that. It was the introduction to the book of 1 Corinthians. Yeah. And none of that technically counts against my time. You could be an hour late and still get your money's worth. Well, the good news is if you stick around and listen until I'm done talking, we have food for you. So we're willing to feed you. And No. We're going to be done in just a minute. We're, we're really, really close here. <laughs> Look at the first phrase Paul uses. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul had to argue repeatedly for his apostleship. Now, what did it take to be an apostle? What? To have seen Jesus. To have seen Jesus. You had to have seen Jesus. You had to have been instructed by Jesus. You couldn't just randomly, willy-nilly call yourself an apostle, Mm. despite the fact that there are people doing that today. (laughs) The apostolic imperative was to take the teaching that you heard from Jesus and make sure that's the teaching that you passed on to other people. It had to be the teaching of Jesus. Now, Paul didn't walk and talk with Jesus during his three-and-a-half-year ministry. In fact, Paul was not converted until after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In fact, Paul was holding cloaks while other men were stoning Stephen. In fact, 
Paul had letters from the leaders of the temple to go and find anybody that believed in Jesus and return them to Jerusalem to be tried and probably killed. That's Paul. And so, of course, anybody who knew him, who knew his reputation, who knew his background, when he says, hey, I'm an apostle, they're going to say, no, you're not. (laughs) You don't have any of the telltale signs of an apostle. And so he had to defend his apostleship over and over again. As he does that, and we'll see it as we go through the book, but as he defends his apostleship, he's going to say, I have seen Jesus. Because on the Damascus Road, he did see Jesus. He did hear from Jesus. And so he starts out this letter to the Corinthians with all their problems by saying, I'm talking to you with apostolic authority. I'm talking to you right from Jesus. We read that Paul spent three years before he began his ministry. He did not go to Jerusalem. He didn't go see the other apostles. He points that out. He didn't go learn his doctrine from the other apostles. He spent three years in the wilderness. And so there's some implication that during those three years, he was being taught by Christ. And that's why he could so frequently say, I got this directly from the Lord. I got this right from Jesus. He argues that he did see Jesus, that he was taught by Jesus, and that he was sent by God. So he is an apostle of God. Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Okay, well, that's the fellow who had been stoned earlier that we read about in Acts 18. He's now there with Paul, and because he's mentioned at the very beginning of the letter, chances are he was the amanuensis. He was the person physically doing the writing. Let's also talk about that for just a moment. In the book of Galatians, Paul talks about the fact that the Galatians loved him so much that they would have torn out their own eyes and given them to him if such a thing were possible. And so there's an implication there, an indication that Paul's problem was that his eyesight was going. Now, when you read that he took 39 lashes, what, five times? Five times beaten with 39 lashes... Yeah, I can see that upsetting your eyesight. And in Jerusalem in the first century, they didn't have lens crafters. If you lost your sight, you lost your sight. And so the indication seems to be that Paul was losing his sight, and that's why he was using usually an amanuensis. The one time that he actually wrote his own letter, he even points it out and says, see what a large letter I wrote to you. So... We have to take all of that into account for the reason that Sosthenes is mentioned here. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. See how many times I've said already, Paul keeps calling them a church of God. He should have said, especially after writing a letter to them and after visiting them a couple times, he should have written, to the rebels in Corinth, to the non-Christian heathen folks at Corinth. That's how I would have begun it. But Paul calls them the church of God, which is at Corinth. To those who have been, look at the next word, to those who have been sanctified by Jesus Christ. 
in Jesus Christ. You've been sanctified. Now he's going to go through two whole letters of talking about how unsanctified they are. Their behavior, the way they argue with each other, the way they sue each other in court, the way one man has another, his own father's wife. I mean, these are not sanctified folks. And yet Paul says, even though you behave that way, even though you act that way, Christ sanctified you. Christ set you apart for his exclusive use. And I find that remarkable. By the way, the Greek word that is used there is hagios, the word from which we get holy. But watch this. He then says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been hagios, who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, quit it. Don't call them saints. Call them rebels. Call them heathens. Call them, don't call them saints. But Paul not only calls them sanctified in Christ Jesus, but then he uses the exact same word. If you go look at it in the Greek, he said, you are hagiazo, you are sanctified in Christ, and you are the hagios in Christ. He used the same word to say Christ has set you aside to be holy and he has called you holy. That's remarkable because there's nothing holy about these people. And that's really, again, good news to me because I know me. I know where I've been and I know what I've done and it ain't all holy. It ain't very much holy. It's a very small amount of it that could ever be called saintly. Almost depraved. I'm almost, (laughs) almost depraved. And yet, Paul says, in the mind of God, because he sent his son and because his son has a particular people, even though you act this way, you are considered both sanctified and holy because of Christ. And I like that. It is remarkable. I'm I'm happy for that. That God, when he looks on me, doesn't see me. He doesn't see my sin. He doesn't see my rebellion. He sees his son in me. And he's content with everything that his son has done. And because I have been separated from the world and given to his son, all that the father gives me will come to me. Because I've been given to his son by God, God no longer deals with my sin. In fact, when Christ died, buried, and resurrected, my sin problem was taken care of. My sin was washed away. And then the very law that would condemn me was nailed to his cross and taken out of the way. And so I am fully, completely, utterly redeemed and saved through his finished work. And therefore, despite how sinful I am, Despite how I've been in my life and continue to act occasionally, God could say, this is mine, he belongs to me, he's sanctified, he's holy, and I can wear the name saint. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. By the way, from this point forward, I refer to myself as Saint Jim. I just, I wouldn't. No, it's a joke. It's a joke. All right, come back, come back. You're making your own jokes now. 
to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. That's how you start a letter. That's how you begin, especially a corrective letter. You begin, notice what Paul is doing. Notice what he's doing. He's not saying, I'm writing this letter to you because you're all a bunch of rebels and heathens and troublemakers and that's why I'm writing. He starts by saying, remember who you are. Remember who you are. You are the Hagias. You are the called. You are the sanctified. You do belong to God. You are the church of Jesus Christ. You have the same Lord as us. He's the same Lord of you. Now, because that's who you are, now let's talk about your behavior. Mm. Paul never starts with, let's talk about your behavior so that you can be the Hagias of God. He never says, clean up your act, and then you'll be the righteous people of God. He always says, let's talk about who you are in God. Let's talk about who you are in Christ. Let's talk about what Christ has already done for you. Now, knowing that about yourself, be like this. And so the whole letter is going to take on that tone. The whole letter is going to take that tone of, you are the saints of God. Now, let's talk about your behavior. Grace to you. Again, think about who these people are. Think about all the problems he's going to have to argue about. Mm. And yet he would say, grace to you and Irene and peace from God, the Father. That's not me. I couldn't write this. (laughs) I couldn't start by saying to this group of people, hey, grace and peace to you. Mm. I would have to start my letter with, what's wrong with you? Shape up or ship out. Quit calling yourself Christians. Stop calling yourself the church. And yet Paul starts out by saying, you are the Hagias, you are the separated to God, you are the redeemed in Christ, and therefore, grace and peace to you from God. Look, if you've got peace with God, then you've really got peace. If you've got peace with the maker of heaven and earth, the judge of every man, and he declares peace to you, irene, the Greek word, I've said this many times, but the Greek word means the ceasing of againstness. Because we're against God, and we're against God's law, and we're against God's righteousness, and we're not good enough. If he were to judge us, he'd have to judge us harshly. And yet, nevertheless, God himself would declare peace to us. Mm. Which means the ceasing of the againstness between us and God, not because we did something, not because we made it better, Mm. not because we put down our gloves to stop the fight, but because God made it all better. Mm -hmm. God did it by sending his son. God did it by the sacrifice of his his son's own blood. God God did it all. We did none of it. All we brought to the party was our sin and our debauchery and our decay and our rebellion. And yet God made peace. That's amazing. Yes. That's just, it's amazing to me. That's it. Then he says... 
I thank my God always concerning you. (laughs) I thank my God always concerning you. As corrupt and vile a city as Corinth is, I thank God that he has some people in that city and that he's gathered you together as a church. And whenever I remember you, I thank God for you. Notice he did not say, thank you for being part of God's body. Thank you for defending the Christian ethic. Thank you. No, he said, why do you exist? Why are you the Hagias? Why are you like this? I thank God. Hmm. I thank God for you. Because it's God who's doing all the work, all the keeping, all the changing. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Jesus Christ. That in everything you were enriched in him in all your speech and in all knowledge. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift and you are awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that about sums me up. That's right there. That's right. I can't say anything good about me, but I can say this. God did the work. God did it all. God has given me both the words, the thoughts, the knowledge of who he is, and I am now looking, anticipating, looking forward to the return of Christ. And that's where we're going to pick up next week, and we will talk a little bit more about the return of Christ and what that means, that that's our hope, that's what we're looking forward to. And then we will delve into Paul's very corrective letter to the Corinthian church. There... That kind of introduced the letter. You got it? You got some sense of what Paul was up against? Yes, sir. It's a tough crowd he's writing to. And I think we all kind of empathize with them. Whenever I read the Corinthian letters, I think, yeah, that's me. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'm like. Yeah, that's what the uh, church in America is like. Yeah, that's what, that's just descriptive of how human beings are. I'm so glad that God did the peacemaking and that Christ did the redeeming and that we are fully saved because of what he did and not anything that we did. Amen. And I'm done now. So say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.